0: Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 80. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com.
1: I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com.
0: And our very special guest is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence, a research and analytics firm. She spent nine years at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, where she served as an advisor to President Richard W. Fisher throughout the financial crisis. She founded Quill Intelligence in 2018 and is the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. She writes a full-time column for Bloomberg View and is a business speaker and commentator and is frequently featured on CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox News, Fox Business, BNN, Bloomberg, Yahoo Finance and other major media outlets. So Danielle, welcome to the show.
2: Great to be here today.
0: Well, it's fantastic to have you on. Um, I'd like to start sort of at the beginning when you first got involved or interested in financial markets. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, my father taught economics and finance, so I swore in a stack of Bibles that I would never go into that industry. So um, <laughs> it, it was a matter of never say never because life came back to haunt me. Uh, when I first visited uh, the the Solomon Brothers, that's no longer with us, the Solomon Brothers two story trading floor down on Wall Street, and I was hooked from the minute I saw it.
0: Oh wow! What a what a what a fantastic image um, I've got in my my mind about that. That sounds amazing.
2: Wire poker. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, indeed, yeah. And so, um, you have an instinct with which company to go for. Can you tell us about your journey after you? Graduated. You had some choices. You made some interesting ones. Uh,
2: yes, indeed. It sounds like you've heard me uh, give a, give a speech recently. Um, yes, I, I I had the option of going with Arthur Anderson. I was nine hours shy, or three courses shy of of sitting for my CPA, and they were going to put me up in corporate housing in Austin, which was is my favorite city, and 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 put me on a fast track to consulting as soon as I passed my. CPA. I I didn't fancy myself a bean counter for the rest of my life, so I turned them down. Um, My mother was adamant that I try and stay in the state of Texas, close to home, so to speak, Um, and so she suggested that I go with a firm that I did not understand. I couldn't get my head around their business model, so uh, I disappointed my mother and said no to Enron. And uh, and then I went off to uh, to to the bright lights in the big city of New York and joined a firm called Donaldson, Lufkin and Jenrette, uh, which is also no longer with us. We sold out at the very top of the internet bubble, and uh, I had to convince my mother that I wasn't going to work for DHL, an international letter carrier. So,
1: <laughs> when when are you when are you going to turn down an offer with Deutsche Bank, uh, Danielle?
2: Oh, gracious. I mean, you know, look, can we bring back Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers as well? We can just put them all together. I can say no to all of them. But you did, but you
0: did actually say no to Lehman's as well, didn't you? Because you, you said you didn't like the culture. You weren't sure of the culture there.
2: No, I, you know what? I wasn't. It didn't give me the same feel as as DLJ. Uh, DLJ was uh, was scrappy. It was very entrepreneurial. There weren't a bunch of of lines drawn up in between divisions they literally had in their in their annual uh, report a, a, a line that said "make money." Wow! And it was it was a much different Wall Street than what you have today, which is very siloed and compartmentalized. And and now we're finding out maybe a little bit too compartmentalized because they seem to be rolling up divisions one after another, and there's blood in the streets.
1: What What did you do at uh, DLJ, Danielle?
2: Well, I was uh, I was recruited into sales and I ended up working quite a bit with, uh, with, with corporations and institutional investors, as well as some individuals. I think I might've learned more from the individuals than anybody else about the idea of, of greed, um, but, I, but it was the private equity aspect of DLJ. Uh, yeah. The fact that we had an internal merchant bank, so Leon Black would wander the halls. He, he, he'd been associated with Drexel. Uh, uh, Tony James, who went on to Blackstone after DLJ was sold. He was vice chairman at the time. He he sold DLJ. I, I learned a lot about private equity before it was this mammoth industry. And mm. then I worked a lot with debt retirement and, uh, and and the guys on the junk bond desk, most of whom had come over from Drexel and who would have easily sold their mother down the river for the right bid ass spread.
0: So you, you've got a fantastic anecdote about price and tim price my co-host here loves a good quote and he loves a good anecdote and we'd love to tell the one that we have both heard from you but we think it's only fair that you tell it yourself
2: well i'll paraphrase i don't have it in front of me but uh i've I've become good friends over the years with arthur Cashin. i consider myself to be very blessed to know him he's probably the preeminent market historian who's still with us um and he loves to tell this story about uh, tiffany the jeweler and J.P. Morgan, the banker, uh, one day Tiffany came across this extraordinarily beautiful stick pin. He knew it had J.P. Morgan's name on it because he, because J.P. Morgan had this acute affinity for these gorgeous stick pins that men used to wear. Uh, and so he sent a man around to Morgan's office with the pin wrapped in a beautiful robin's egg blue gift wrap, and uh, with uh, and said, "This, this I know will will appeal to you. The price, however, is." is $5,000 if you choose to accept, send a man, send your man back around tomorrow with the check for 5,000, if not uh, send, send the box back. Uh, so one day goes by, Morgan's man shows up at Tiffany's offices the next day uh, with a box wrapped differently and a check for $4,000. Uh, Tiffany sat long and hard thinking because $4,000 in that day was indeed a great sum of money, but he was quite certain that the pin was worth $5,000. So he sent the man walking uh, and said, please let Mr. Morgan know my price was firm. And so then Tiffany goes on to unwrap the box, and inside of that box he finds not the stick pin, but rather a check from Morgan with a single sentence, which was, just checking the price. Brilliant. So uh, I love that story, just checking the price, because that is the way that price discovery uh, was always meant to operate in naturally functioning markets that are not impeded by, oh, I don't know, the Federal Reserve.
0: So what's going wrong at the moment, in your view?
2: Well, I think, I think what's going wrong has been going wrong since the aftermath of the 1987 crash, Black Monday, when Alan Greenspan put word out that the Fed would, uh, would be there in the event of any kind of a calamity in the banking or financial system. And it's fine to put out a word of assurance. It's different to send word to bond trading desks on Wall Street via the New York Federal Reserve uh, about intentions of – of, of the Fed to inject liquidity into the system prior to those injections. In other words, in, in in market vernacular, allowing Wall Street to front run the Fed. And I think that that is kind of where moral hazard was born in the modern era. And uh, investors have come to know that regardless of how much risk they take on, they no longer have to factor in the return side of the equation because they know if something goes really wrong, like the tequila crisis in 1994 or the municipal um, blow up in Orange County or long-term capital management, a bunch of academics trying to blow up the financial system, uh, they know that the Fed is going to have their back. And Jay Powell said as much when he was a rookie on the Federal Reserve Board in uh, in the fall of 2012.
1: So to, to cut to the chase, is the problem with the the, the mission statement of the Fed or the staff of the Fed, or is the problem the Fed itself?
2: Well, well I think it goes down to, uh, to the, the focus, which wasn't always the case, but to the focus on having mostly PhD academics um, setting monetary policy by way of models that oftentimes have absolutely nothing to do with uh, how the economy or the markets operate. Um, and they have really come, I use, in, in, in my book Fed Up, I call them the MIT Mafia, and they've really come to have an outsized influence on how policy is made, and I don't think that that's exclusive to the Federal Reserve. I think you could certainly find similar dynamics in the European Central Bank, Bank of England, Bank mm-hmm. of Japan, uh, but they've, they've come to have outside influence on how policy is made, but that leaves po- that, that leaves Fed officials and Fed leaders unaware of the critical role that financials, financial markets play when they come together with economic data. Um, so I, I think the disregard, Powell even acknowledged it uh, in his first Jackson Hole speech, that the past two recessions in the United States have not been brought on uh, by any type of inflationary pressures, but rather financial
0: instability. Could one argue that This perhaps goes back even further to when the U.S. came off the gold standard in in the 70s.
2: Well, you know, I think that there is something to be said for looking back even further, though I have to say my hero is Paul Volcker, um, and I I considered him to be a highly disciplined uh, monetary policymaker. But there is something to be said, I think, for the lack of discipline in monetary policymaking that has come alongside of, uh, of, of coming off of the gold standard and, and relying increasingly on, uh, on the laurel of reserve currency status and what it can give you uh, in, in the way of, of, of fiscal profligacy.
0: You're an advocate of gold, but how large would you expect to have uh, a percentage of gold in your portfolio?
2: Well, I think you should always have gold in the background, so to speak. Um, so you should always have that be, a, a, you know, a good five, 10%, let's call it, as a permanent hedge, uh, because you never know if an asteroid's going to hit planet Earth.
0: One might hit, with which has got a lot of gold in it, which is, I don't know if you've heard about that.
2: No, no, I've, I've seen this. I've seen this, <laughs> mainly with my Twitter followers in the middle of the night, um, but uh but you always want to have uh, uh, that, that that backbone of hedge built into your portfolio, uh, because if you look at correlations and how they behave in between asset classes, when the peanut butter hits the fan, so to speak, there are very few places you can hide. And uh, that's why I personally do own gold, as well as what I'm writing about for my weekly quill, uh, municipal bonds, which may seem counterintuitive in that I am a. A, a huge critic of the worst-run pensions in America, uh, but but again, gold, municipal bonds—very few places to hide uh, when the peanut butter hits the fan and correlations line up, and you end up losing money across the board, which you know puts the efficient frontier—you know—sends it the way of the dodo bird, so to speak.
1: In in relation to gold. Should should we should we and that we is a kind of global we be concerned about the precedent set by Executive Order Six One O Two in nineteen thirty three if it was thirty three when um, the ownership of gold was made illegal in the U S.
2: These are very heady questions. They tend to come about in times of of global depression. They they tend to come about in times of not currency wars but hot wars, and and one does want to be very careful about speculating, uh, but I would say that, that very respected individuals, Ken Rogoff being one of them, you know, he, uh, he is one of the most uh, highly regarded, highly esteemed thinkers in monetary policy worldwide. And you know, he's written about the death of cash and, uh, and imposing haircuts on individuals who saw fit to hold hard cash as we saw to be the case in Tokyo, uh, after negative interest rates were imposed, the number one selling good on the market was home safes. And so Rogoff's, uh, Rogoff's solution to this in the United States, if it was to be translated over a negative interest rate policy that would theoretically force consumers to spend. So if, if you chose not to, and you wanted to keep your Your pennies in the bank then you would get a haircut for doing so you would be penalized for doing so and i would draw a parallel to the confiscation of gold uh if you're talking about taking away part of my hard-earned dollar because Mm -hmm. i want to keep it safe
0: do you have any uh any view on cryptocurrencies
2: Well, I think cryptocurrencies are uh, in that they have been taken up post facto by China, by Russia, by Venezuela. I think that because it's already become a sovereign issue, the uh, the Bank of England, for example, was probably the first developed central bank to begin exploring a sovereign cryptocurrency. I I think that there are certainly circles uh, within the U.S. government that are exploring this, not that anybody wants to talk about it publicly, but I do think that, that it will become a matter of national security if your Cold War enemies, uh, economic enemies, so to speak, have a cryptocurrency. It would be incumbent upon any country to have their own as well rather than be infiltrated. So those yeah. are kind of my views on where I stand on, on cryptocurrencies. I think that a lot of, um, a lot of speculation has been has been done with other cryptocurrencies. But when you hear and see headlines related to child pornography rings and that they're they're being obfuscated using cryptocurrencies, you see the security is not where it needs to be. I, I think that we're better off uh, going the sovereign route as long as there's no confiscation of cash and it doesn't become some means by which you you monitor the, the, the purchases of, of your populace, which is why I think It has started in places like China and Russia, because I think that that is one of their express purposes.
0: Do you think that the um, economy or the the stock market can continue on its current upward path for the for the foreseeable future? Or do you see that there's headwinds coming that uh, that people should be worried about?
2: So uh, so full disclaimer, I'm on bubble vision from time to time (laughs) and doing these quick three minute hits. And it's, it's interesting to hear the schadenfreude coming from the, 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 the bullish cabal on Bubble Vision. And they're so excited that recession probabilities have vanished into thin air. Have they? They they're haven't. making the assumption that the reason this has happened is because of some type of organic fundamental underlying growth in the U.S. economy and in other economies such as Europe, where we're seeing a lot of green shoots. Uh, I would defer to Powell's printing press and suggest to you that tacking $250 billion onto the balance sheet of the Fed in the country that has the highest efficacy, we get the biggest bang for our debt buck, if you will. Uh, This is some fascinating research that came out of Poisington Asset Management recently, uh, and it shows that in the post-crisis era, the United States has only lost about 6% of its efficacy in terms of deploying a dollar of debt to try and extract GDP growth. That compares to something in the 20-some-odd percentage range for China, where it's much more like water falling through a colander, and they have much less efficacy in terms of every debt that they, a dollar of debt that they create. But again, there is little, there has never been, in my view, uh, a solid way to fight the Fed if they're throwing so much liquidity at markets that is also, by the way, making sure that the share buyback machine stays up and running. So right now we have a double source of liquidity propping up risky asset prices. And I would say that while this certainly cannot go on forever because I think that year-end funding pressures are going to compel the Federal Reserve to increase further its balance sheet expansion. That we should, uh, we should be very careful about trying to fight the Fed when it has got the bazooka going full throttle, or I should say, the fire hose going full throttle.
1: One of the um, the guys we had, I uh, guess we had on the podcast uh, a while back was a gentleman by the name of Stephen Wilkinson, who's a investor and business business analyst uh, in Ireland and Germany. And he he sent me an email earlier, and I just want to read a bit out. Uh, I'm sure he won't mind. I'm currently unsure of whether I've manoeuvred myself into an echo chamber of a clique of like-minded value investors who can see clearly that we're in extra time or whether the current narrative, uh, dangerously close to the end of the everything bubble and man the lifeboats, is now the popular view and therefore discounted. And this gets to the heart of the quote. As I mentioned to you, my view is coloured strongly by a moral conviction that what we have now, broken money – punishment of savers, risk-free re- reward for insiders, etc., is simply wrong and possibly even evil at a societal level. So what I think will happen and what I believe should happen to purge the system of moral turpitude are conflated at the margin. This technocratic disregard of the concerns and values of the saving classes personified in the ghastly Ms Lagarde's most recent comments disgusts me personally. Now, I find it very difficult to not to agree with with Stephen's point about if you like, so, well, let's call it moral hazard for want of a better, better way of putting it. And the fact that, you know, Christine Lagarde, I don't know if you're familiar with the comments she made, but they, they were truly disgusting. The idea that we should all be grateful. People in Europe should be grateful. Um, you know, OK, so interest rates might be negative, but at least we have jobs. And I'm just thinking, oh, my God, is, is, is she for real?
2: Yes, um you know, I, I I saw those comments. and um and the the blatant disregard uh, worldwide, I will tell you, for the working man and working woman and the uh, the inability to set aside money for retirement without being penalized is i I would agree with the word criminal. I, I really, really would you know I I'm, again, this week I'm writing about municipal bonds and, and public pensions and forcing pensions to go into alternative investments, private equity, to increase you know, to uh, their, their equity holdings, their high yield holdings, to go into passive investments that they won't be able to get out of. They're playing with somebody's mothers and somebody's grandfather's well-being. And I don't think, uh, it's, it's absolutely reprehensible and it, it, it gets under my skin. I wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. Uh, that, that there is something that is so fundamentally, um, un-American is what I wrote. I was writing about the, the, the Federal Reserve specifically. But if you consider uh, the value of liberty uh, it truly rips away at at liberty and the ability to be self-determining, and I don't think the word criminal is too strong at all.
0: Are, are people at the moment? Do you think just um, I mean, there's people like us who can obviously see this and are outraged by it, but that the man on the street doesn't seem to be bothered by it because they they let's just say perhaps they don't know enough about it, don't want to know enough about it. And as long as the stock market is going up, they, they feel OK. Um, but it's not. How, how can we educate people? How can we let them know? How can we go? How can we change the system? Is, do you think it's possible?
2: Well, I, I think it, it it would be possible to change the system if there was a floor on interest rates, for example, if financial literacy was better embraced if people understood that, uh, that the stock market doesn't go up forever. Um, but it's very, very difficult to convey. You know, two times in U.S. history, 1968, 1999. Uh, two other times, stock market holdings, if you look at household net worth, have been larger than residential real estate holdings, which is typically the way you build wealth, at least in this country. So, and today, dot, 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 meaning the real economy is, has never been as tethered as it is to the fortunes and the fates of the stock market. And it, a lot of this has to do with how very unproductive uh, monetary policy has made our economies. We had an entire cycle based on residential real estate. That was, that was an unproductive venture. We had a second one that we're in right now, based on the financialization of the economy. That is inherently unproductive, and we're not getting anything to show for it uh, over a long-term basis. And yet, the average person on the street will tell you, especially if they've got a four hundred one k, that you need to be quiet, that you need to, that you're 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 simply bitter because you've missed out on this magnificent rally. And you, you need to stop trying to talk down um, the stock market. Of course, that's not what you're doing. You're trying to say you need to understand what the underlying motivator has been and how very false it is in nature. And these are very difficult lessons to convey.
1: I don't know what the sorry, I don't know what the the uh, status is of the U.S. educational system, but I can tell you that here in the UK there is no provision that I'm aware of for financial literacy in our schools. Um, and what one thing I've supported is we've we've gone a bit petition crazy in the UK ever since the Brexit referendum. So every everyone's firing off petitions to Parliament, left, right, and centre about everything. Uh, but one that I've supported recently is an idea is is the idea to have some form of financial literacy be part of our national curriculum. Is there anything like that in the US?
2: Oh, good gosh, no. I mean, probably the best the best day of my career because my soapbox involves public education in America. I mean, I, I, think, that the, I, I think that the main uh, victim, if you will, of Federal Reserve policy, and people say, how do you draw those lines? I say, well, I draw those, I draw those lines because Federal Reserve policy has made public, the public pension system uh, that, that favors unions as strong as it is, and they thereby impede uh, the average American's ability to access uh, public education but there's, there's nowhere to be seen uh, financial literacy in our schools, our best schools, of course there are, uh, mm. but that's probably what 5% of, of American schools. Otherwise, as I said, probably the happiest moment of my career was when an, an AP economics class, this is kind of a gifted and talented high school economics class uh, tweeted out a picture of every student holding a copy of Fed Up oh, because I goodness. said, oh my gosh, there's going to be 15 students in America who actually know the truth and are embracing financial literacy. It is, It is. If, if I knew a way to start a national petition, I would. That's not how our democracy works, unfortunately, and it's certainly not how 90% of our politicians are.
0: Do you think things would have been different under a Clinton administration?
2: Well, yes, I think they would have been worse. Um, I, I actually enjoyed at the beginning of Jay Powell's tenure. Uh, he initially, he, he was up in front of Congress uh, but his, his initial congressional testimony basically said it is not the Fed's duty to backstop the stock market. He even understood the idea of moral hazard, which, again, you can see in the FOMC transcripts from 2012. Uh, I, I, I happen to think that I mentioned Ken Rogoff. I think he would probably be running the Fed at this point uh, if, if it was Hillary Clinton. I think that she had him earmarked to be at least among those leaders in the Fed. And I think that we would have had even more dovish policies. I don't think there would have even been an attempt at normalizing interest rates. I'm I'm not trying to make a political statement at all, but prior to President Trump being elected, nobody at the Fed would talk about quantitative tightening or the very idea of shrinking the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, it, It was simply a sacred cow. You didn't even touch the subject. And the minute Trump was elected, all of a sudden it was time to normalize interest rates, shrink the balance sheet, do double tightening, et cetera. And I don't think that there was any type of a political motivation at work there. I think it was very much pointed uh, at trying to put
0: the U.S. Uh, U.S. economy into recession. Are you familiar with an investor called Jim Rogers?
2: I am. I met Jim many years ago. I, I've well, not followed him. Yeah. recently.
0: Okay well it's just that as of the people that I've listened to over the years um, and listened to from on Bubble Vision many times and who I respect you know a lot his view is his view has always been that we don't need the Fed and he, he says look I'm buying gold and uh, I don't like what's going on in America and therefore he's moved to Singapore and you know I've got, I've got a lot of sympathy with his point of view, and he's very smart. Uh, tells, it, tells it as it is, but his view that why don't we just get rid of the central banks and let let the markets let price discovery be be free? Would you go that far?
2: Um, so, so no, I I would not go that far. Uh, the final chapter of Fed Up actually is a blueprint to what I would do with the Fed given my druthers. I would I would take it all the way down to the studs and rebuild it from the ground up, but I, um, I I am a little bit more circumspect when it comes to matters of national security, and would not like to see what uh, what some of our enemies who have been prone to steal things would do if we had a completely unguarded financial system.
0: Right. I see. Um, Yeah. So so if you were to do that, though, wouldn't you have to rebuild all the central banks around the world? You certainly would.
2: Uh, You hit the nail on the head with that because the group think is not something that is internalized at the Fed. Uh, Most central bankers think alike, act alike uh, and come from the same same school of thought. And that is very dangerous because you end up with these situations where you don't just have a boom-bust cycle in the United States. You have boom-bust cycles worldwide, and you end up spreading systemic risk with such a mechanism. So you right now we've got, for, for example, Japanese banks own 10% of collateralized loan obligations in a desperate search for yield. It, it, when the subprime crisis blew up, I had... I had actually written about it. I'd predicted it. I said it was going to be global and systemic in nature. I was fairly alone off on a branch uh, with, you know, being stoned dead, you know, by people in the masses. And how could she be saying this? But at the time, as prescient as I can boast to having been, I had never heard of a German Landesbank. Never didn't know what it was. And yet that is one of the places where we started to see subprime loans blow up. And it was because when, when all central bankers in the world think alike, they take on identical tax, you end up having financial systems begin to bleed into one another. And when things do go wrong, the the, instant, the, the instance of, of contagion is that much higher.
0: Yes, because everything moves, everything's correlated, basically.
2: Exactly. Interrelated, correlated, incestuous, call it what you want.
0: Yes, yes. So when you look around the world at uh, at currencies, given that, say, the US could be going into recession, say, next year, or things could be slowing down, um, what currencies at the moment do you think people should be looking at to buy, basically? Gold. Apart from gold, uh, which we've got.
1: Silver, silver.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah um, so, so i'm i i'm I'm going to say right now, I have no idea. I'm a bit out of my realm uh, when it comes to asking me such such questions. You know, I used to have faith in uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia. I was there recently for a speech and uh, was very disheartened because the central bank there is finally in an easing cycle as china Chinese growth slows and takes its toll on that that nation that has been, absolutely swarmed with speculative real estate. Uh, but there was a time that I would have said Mexico, Poland, and Australia. But I cannot throw those three examples out to you anymore.
0: But you, you're bullish on the U.S. dollar, though, still, aren't you? Or has, has that changed?
2: Well, uh- no, um, one of my three predictions going into the new year was that Germany would go into recession, that the U.S. dollar would strengthen, and that the 10-year benchmark treasury would, would close under 2%. Cool uh, Intelligence put those out on December the 26th,
0: 2018. Wow, that's cool. Uh, well done.
2: Well, you know what? Blind squirrels. Even blind squirrels <laughs> have good days. That's my – uh, never discount the power of luck.
0: Well, come on! I mean, I think you, 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 yeah. I think more than that. So, what, what are you thinking for next year? What's, uh, what, what's the call? More of the same, or?
2: Well, we have to wait and see. Uh, you Ooh. know, the the thinking right now is that is that Europe is going to pull out of this, that Brexit's going to have a kumbaya happy ending, and Ooh. that there will be absolutely no ramifications worldwide on, on the economy. Who uh, thinks that? Most of investors right now, at really? least in the United States.
0: Oh, oh my God. Have they got a wake-up call coming?
2: They, that is, that is, the running assumption right now is that that Donald Trump has miraculously secured protections for intellectual property, even though the Chinese haven't even hinted at such great strides. But that is the conventional wisdom. It is that Europe is going to pull out of its slump completely that the trade war is going to be resolved amicably and that Brexit is going to have zero consequences and that, ergo, recession probabilities have plummeted.
1: But also, Elvis is still alive. (laughs) Yes, indeed,
2: he is. He and Jimmy Hoffa are sitting down and having a nice game of bridge.
1: (laughs) For for anybody in the US listening to this uh, podcast, uh, I must just make clear that Brexiting... Uh, was defined in the urban dictionary as saying goodbye to everyone at a party and then proceeding to stick around. So, <laughs> exactly. So, do you have a view? Do you have a? So, I mean, you, you, you've given, if you like, the institutional view. Uh, but I mean, what's your personal opinion in relation to? Uh, what, what will happen, what could conceivably happen? Well, I suppose first in, in, in order, first in our, our forthcoming, Britain's forthcoming general election in December the 12th, and then depending on, on how that goes, the, the likelihood of us ever managing to extract ourselves from the death grip that is the dead hand of the European Union and the single currency and the failing uh, big state uh, protectionist anti-free trade bloc. Not that we have a strong view on the matter.
2: I couldn't tell. Um, so I don't have a strong view on the matter, but what I would say is that some of the work that we've done recently suggests that, as is the case with the United States, the Bank of England has got a tall order on its hand to slow the slowdown in the British economy. And I would say the same goes for Europe because you cannot reurbanize all of China and you're not going to make the industrial... Uh, the, The internal combustion engine have a massive comeback. So I think Germany's got structural and secular issues on its hands. And it is, of course, the fourth largest economy in the world and the third largest exporting nation. The reason I throw these out there is not to lead you off on a path, but I would say that I think policymakers and politicians are going to know that the stakes are too high to do anything but if... You know if push comes to shove, more of the same of kicking the can down the road as opposed to finding true resolution.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned the the sort of group think in the institutional world. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a a a British analyst uh, Russell Napier um who's a financial marketer right. yes. Yeah, financial market historian Russell has been writing recently about, well, he, I think he's just come back from a business trip visiting institutional clients around the world, including in the States. And I was struck by what he said, which was he, he felt that everyone, there was this big consensus that, that, that Trump was going to secure a trade deal with China because it would help his re-election prospects. And Russell's Russell's contention was exactly the opposite of that, that if you look at what's happening on the ground, Vis-à-vis the U.S. and China, uh, trade trade has been weaponized. Technology transfer has been weaponized. Currency has been weaponized, and the military. There is now a, a heightened military tension between the two powers, superpowers, if you if you like, and. Russell's contention would be that actually Trump doesn't really care less about, you know, securing a, a decent trade deal with China. He's probably he could conceivably be more be more interested in actually having a hot war with China instead to boost his election pro- re-election prospects.
2: Um, I will say this after.
1: I, mean, I appreciate we're getting kind of off the financial track here. So we're moving into the realm of geopolitics. But
2: you're actually not off the financial track because.
1: Well, I suppose it is related. It's all related now.
2: Well, it is related when you consider the fact that we use our reserve currency status as a weapon. And that, that, that is the way that, that we ensure that we have, uh, that we have the, the dominant position on the world stage. And it, it's certainly something I think that, that, that the Chinese can't stand. I think part of their long-term plan is to quietly colonize a good chunk of the world because they're not able to, to have their own currency um take out the dollar so they're they're going about they're going about growing the influence of the Chinese economy uh, by way of, of effectively colonizing other countries with asset purchases of key resources um, it, it wouldn't let, let me put it this way when it comes to this particular administration and I don't think I'm uh, making a political statement at all. nothing would
0: surprise me with regard to your your book Fed up. When you, when you wrote it, when you, you you obviously felt so strongly that you had to write it, it would have been very easy just to have left the Fed after nine years and said, oh, I don't agree with what's going on there. But you actually sat down and wrote this book. And it, was it a cathartic experience?
2: Oh, gosh, yes. It really, really was. Um, sometime around 2010 or so, um, the uh, there was an internal discussion group, white papers written, and there, there was there, there was a consensus inside the Fed that they were using the wrong inflation measure, uh, the one that they can't ever seem to get to 2%. But the problem was it was determined that that was by design. Mm-hmm. Um, it did not take asset price inflation into account, which of course is what sideswiped policymakers. And uh, it also had some fatal Errors in its construct. For example, the PCE that the Fed makes policy with uh, uses Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates to, uh, as an input for healthcare costs, which are the second largest of every household budget. Uh, in, in the most recent October Consumer Price Index report, healthcare inflation is actually up 4.3% if you look at what Americans are spending in terms of out of pocket expenses. So if you use something that is, by its very nature, flawed in its construct, then it's time to find a new inflation metric such that you're not caught off guard again. And so anyways, after coming to this epiphany internally, the Fed decided to do absolutely nothing about it. And that is when I got fed up. And that is when I decided to write the book. It was a very long five years that followed because the president of the Dallas Fed, Richard Fisher, who I advised asked me to stay on for four more years through the end of his term. I uh, accepted that call to duty and I don't have any regrets about it, but it was certainly cathartic. The minute I got out, I started writing the book um, because there's nothing quite like the hubris of academics who even acknowledge the error of their ways and choose to do nothing about it because finding a different inflation metric that reflected reality would have messed with their models. And that's a quote.
0: It's incredible. It's just absolutely incredible. And and also that the, the lessons of the, the previous crisis just haven't been learned. I mean, it's 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 also simple. I mean, it's it's amazing to hear it from you because obviously you you're on the inside and from the outside. This is all. These are all things that we suspect and you know scratch our heads and think, well, how can they not see that? But you know, for you to say that they know and they just don't want to do anything about it is 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 so galling. Um, sorry, Tim. You. No, I was uh, just going to say there's
1: a there's a there's a website there's a hysterical website you might have seen called Long i Capital dot com, and I'm not sure it's, upda- it's, I'm not sure it's updated uh, as often as it used to be. But I do remember. I mean, it, most of the, the best posts were in relation to gaming the CFA exams. But uh, what, one of the best things they did uh, a while back was they talked about their favorite inflation measure, which was the inflation x inflation. Statistic, which was r- remarkably remarkably stable over time, at a flat line of zero.
2: <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that wonderful?
0: So you set up soon after you wrote the book, or while you wrote the book, you set up you set up Quill Intelligence. Is that right?
2: I did. Uh, I, I left the Fed on June the twelfth, two thousand fifteen. I published my first weekly on the seventeenth of June, and uh, I, I think I've skipped one week since then. And about wow. a year and a half ago, I, I founded Quill Intelligence and added a daily market commentary uh, to my repertoire because I decided that there was absolutely no reason that I could find to sleep. Um, so uh, I decided to put a daily on top of the weekly. And now we publish constantly and have a, a good cult following. And we also have kind of also a hate group because we tend to point out simply the data with absolutely no bias. And that was always my, that was always my goal with Quill Intelligence and, and when I was inside the Fed was to present data agnostically and free of bias and agenda. And let me tell you, there's nothing that gets under the skin of PhD economists more and not coincidentally, sell side economists as well. So suffice it to say, I relish what I do.
1: That's a fairly brutal regime, though, a, a, a daily commentary. I, I used to write daily commentary, but I, I can't do it anymore. So I, I restrict myself to weekly. But daily stuff is that's a hard. Those are hard yards. No,
2: absolutely. No doubt. Um, and I, I, I do have a good team who I work with, but it uh, I am. I'm, I'm addicted to people say that I, if I could watch Bloomberg in my sleep, I would. <laughs> uh, and I—it's always on mute, but I love the—I love the information inflow. So, if there's one good way of making sure that you stay on top of the markets and economic data, it's to do a daily. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, the discipline of that. So you've got the daily feather and the weekly quill, and so I guess you know. You're just thinking of a name for a monthly now, are you?
2: Or? Oh gosh, no, no. no, no. <laughs> I, I, I was kidding about the need to sleep. I—I I, I do it occasionally. <laughs>
1: <laughs> quiver just quiver doesn't quiver works isn't it the
2: quiver, monthly quiver
1: yeah, yeah. Monthly you've quiver, just yeah. you've just
2: increased my job description thank you not very much
0: <laughs> you've got something you've got hashtag research revolution tell me what, what that's about
2: so it's, it's it's what i just mentioned it's the it's the very idea of of the clean presentation of data of, right. of being able to look in the weeds get beyond the headlines. You know, there's a treasure trove of information to be found, for example, every month in the University of Michigan confidence data. It breaks out confidence uh, by, by income cohort, for example. And we have seen, just to throw one thing out there, we have seen throughout the past few years and the Trump revolution, the, that confidence among those making 50000 and less, the, the bottom third of income earners, if you will, that has been leading the charge. And it's a fascinating reflection of tearing down the regulatory apparatus and and being able to, to increase uh, employment among those with the, the least amount of education, which is a fantastic thing. You have to have everybody participate in your economy. If you don't, you have terrible sclerosis. Um, but it's been interesting to see that. We also, for example, follow continuing jobless claims as opposed to the unemployment rate, which is about the most backward looking indicator you could ever cite. Uh, Continuing jobless claims have been increasing for the past few weeks for the first time since December 2009. That is hard data that is not revised. It's not seasonally adjusted. It simply is good, hard, clean data. And we're able to make determinations about where we are in the cycle and therefore how much liquidity we need to offset the slowing. So that is the type of, of analysis that we perform day in and day out.
1: Does does your opportunity set um, in terms of potential investments reach beyond the sort of the, the traditional assets of, of equity, listed equity, debt? You've, you've mentioned municipal bonds. Uh, would it include alternatives, things like, you know, strategies like hedge funds or anything like that?
2: Well, so I do think that there is something to be said for for finding a good manager um, in, in long volatility, because I think that you need to, it's, I think long volatility will be akin to gold, uh, when the time comes. So I think being Mm -hmm. positioned to take advantage of the, the return of volatility is going to be important. And there are a few good managers out there. Um, I'll give a shameless plug to a friend of mine, uh, uh, Christopher Cole, who runs Artemis Capital. They've done more study on that particular area than um, than, than I've seen anywhere. It's brilliant, and I also, in in years past and currently, uh, am invested in individual companies only from a seed basis, and that's just on a personal level. If I if I if I can see it, understand it, and like Warren Buffett used to do, uh, kick the tires, then I'm I'm happy to invest in a, a company that I feel will be. Uh,
0: recession-proof over the long term. Have you ever thought about managing money for for someone else, setting up your own fund? Yes, gracious
2: me, boy, do I get asked that question quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. And as soon as they as they maximize cloning capabilities, I'll be right there. no, um, no. It, it, it is it is definitely something that is uh, that is being contemplated right now because it is uh, credit shops, especially, trade off of the daily feather. So
0: you could obviously write a book about how to analyze the data. If you, if you, I mean, there's obviously so many things a talented person can do, but um, would that interest you as well? Because it seems like you're rewriting economics here.
2: And purposely so, yes. Uh, And and no, I, I, that is something that would be fascinating to, to have the time to do one day. If I get quill big enough that somebody can write just like me (laughs) Mm. and be able to step back and, and look at the big picture, because I think that it is, Uh, I think that one of the Achilles heels and and it's so infuriating to hear all of the the, the speakers say, you know, this is the lowest unemployment rate in 51 years. And you're like, do you know what happened in December 1969 after September 1969?
1: October, October and November 69, surely.
2: Well, it, yeah. Same. <laughs> but you had a boomerang effect, so you should be wary of, of, of being excited that you have these massive historic lows because they tend to not be long-lived, which means that you need to look at secondary indicators in order to understand where that rate might be headed and when. So it would be fascinating to, to write a book about uh, what we call at Quill uh, cycle chasing, because that's that's what yeah. we are. We, we're it, like a storm chaser chasing a tornado. In the Midwest uh, of the United States, we're cycle chasers.
0: Does the data that you look at, does it, you you find pure, unadulterated data? Um, but does does that change, or can you always rely on it?
2: Oh no, 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 no. Sometimes so, sometimes data become irrelevant in terms of what you're looking at. Uh, I mean, we we've had layoffs increasing in the United States, for example, uh, for a very long time. But because there has been Uh, A lot of stagnation in this in the skill set of the American workforce Uh, layoffs don't necessarily matter as much uh, if you're a skilled worker and you're going to get absorbed immediately because there's this skills gap. Uh, What we have started following much more quickly out of the same outfit, Challenger Grand Christmas, is CEO turnover. And in the month of, uh, of September, we saw record numbers of CEOs change positions. Some of that might have had to do with misbehaving in the C-suite. Uh, some of it surely has to do with the, the level of insider selling that we've seen. But a good portion of it is, is also presumably boards of directors getting in new blood that will be agnostic to the workforce and be able to cut costs at economic inflection points. So that is something that is fairly new on our radar. Is is the level of CEO turnover because again it is the highest that it's been in the current cycle.
0: Tim,
1: what do you think? Should we uh, go to Media Picks? I'm not sure. I'm not sure we warned you about this, Danielle. So Uh,
2: probably not, since I'm like Media (laughs) Who.
0: Yeah. um, Basically, what we do is um, we we like to offer up a book or film or something like that, that we, you absolutely love or we absolutely hate? So, uh,
2: my aha moment when I was reading a book came from the Lords of Finance. Uh, I became extremely nervous because I ran out of fingers and toes to count the parallels. And that was kind of one of the things that led me to understand the long-term implications of what monetary policy was doing, not just to our economies, but to our societies. Um, And that eventually led to war. So I think the Lords of Finance is is something that everybody who would ever listen to this podcast would read. And then probably the most influential book about uh, how very precious life is and how short it can be is The Goldfinch. So if you're on a beach, bring it with you, read it. Um, but understanding that it is a very heavy, heavy read. But again, life is very short, which is why you should always be fed up and speak the truth.
0: Yeah, definitely. Fantastic picks. Tim, what are you got? Very
1: briefly, because I, I don't know if we discussed this earlier, but I, I'm going to go with uh, something I've just started watching on your recommendation, which is uh, Ozark. I've long been a fan. Uh, have, you, have you seen Ozark, Danielle?
2: You know, uh, I have not. I don't see as much television as as i would like i am a fan (laughs) of the blacklist because i i like the idea of dark brilliance but no i I, i've not seen ozark but i've heard wonderful things oh
0: it's because i i I, I
1: happen to love jason bateman and uh, so it's it's got a a nice little cast but it's uh, i noticed it's, it's for anyone that hasn't hasn't yet come across it it's basically a a financial advisor who, well, it, it starts in rather black terms and doesn't exactly improve from there. So there's, there's, let's, let's say there's a drug cartel and, you know, in the timeless words of, of, of aliens, uh, a few deaths were involved and, um, and uh, so this this guy, the premise is he t- takes his family down to to the Ozarks to with with a, the mission to launder half a billion dollars to to uh, to to buy his survival from a Mexican drug gang. It's a light romantic comedy, yeah. basically.
2: It sounds like it, and I've actually I'm, I'm actually quite the student of the drug cartel, being that I live in Texas and grew up in San Antonio, which was two and a half hours north of the border. So. Uh, now I'm fascinated, and I'm going to have to watch it. So eight, eight, yeah, eight, eight f-
1: point three on IMDb, so can't can't it's, be bad. It's, it's,
2: Thank you for robbing me of for- one more hour of sleep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I might have to do the same, actually. Um, with I don't know if you've seen Fahrenheit eleven nine, which is uh, um, I was kind of hoping that you might have seen it, um, Danielle. But I think because you're so busy, obviously you don't hardly watch any. But it's uh, work, it's work the, smarter,
2: um,
1: not harder, Danielle.
2: Uh, gosh yes i do need a personal assistant since you mentioned it
0: absolutely well it's a it's a michael moore documentary and it's about how trump came to power and it's it's also just just about crony capitalism I, I, i i can words just like fail me about this um i just couldn't believe what i was seeing and I think everybody should watch it. It's just incredible. So um, Fahrenheit 11.9. So, of course, he made not Fahrenheit 9.11, but Fahrenheit 11.9. It's about crony capitalism and the political uh, arena uh, in the US. And it is just like you couldn't make it up, basically. I was just jaw on the floor watching it. So I don't want to say any more. I think people just have to watch it for themselves. But it's... a uh, um it change has to come i mean it's just there has to be change and uh i think i don't know whether a documentary is enough to make to make people change what they do but you know it certainly makes them think and i think it's books like fed up and documentaries like fahrenheit Eleven Nine that, that uh that are moving in the right direction
2: i hope so and i hope that i i hope that there is a greater awareness uh rather than anger continuing to build up in the background because that doesn't typically get us anywhere.
0: Yes, absolutely. We, I mean, solutions is what people want, really, isn't it? I mean, um, and also to protect their wealth. And and that's ultimately, you know, what we're thinking here, what we're looking forward into the future. It's not just to say things are bad. It's like, well, look, you've got to try and protect yourself. You've got to take, make decisions for yourself and think for yourself. You've obviously, you obviously learned that at a very early age. Uh, Danielle, you make your own decisions, and you're clearly not put off by what other people say. And that's that's something that that Tim and I, um, you know, share in in our own views. You know, it doesn't matter what other people are thinking; it's what we think is right. And it's so easy to to be kind of almost brainwashed by the education system that you've got to think that there's always somebody else higher up who knows more than you. Um, you know, people like Jim Rogers who just say, "Look, do your own research. Look." Look it up, find out—is this right or is it wrong? And and uh, to get people to think like that, rather than just accepting things, um, is is a very important process. That's what we should be teaching our kids.
2: I, I couldn't agree more, and I'm definitely teaching my own those very lessons.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, that's absolutely fantastic, Danielle. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for being so generous with your time. If our listeners want to get in contact with you. What is your web address and your Twitter handle? Uh,
2: so my Twitter handle is at Demartino Booth. It's quite a mouthful, but you'll find me. I'm out there. And have a look at, uh, at quillintelligence.com. I'll be providing uh, you with a sample of a daily feather to, to put up alongside this so that they can get a feel for, uh, for, for, for what, what the type of research is that we do rather than me just describing it.
0: Brilliant. That would be absolutely fantastic. Danielle, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And we hope to have you back if if we can one day. Yes, indeed. I would enjoy that very much. Thank you. Thanks again. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So once again, Tim, thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.